This episode is partially brought to you by the Humble Choice Program. Did you know Humble Bundle has a great monthly subscription service that lets you get a ton of video games every single month? That's right, from plans range from $5 to 20 bucks a month, you get a hold of a bunch of free games they have available to you. And you can use our code down in the description below to go and sign up. It would help our podcast and help you see what great games are available for you this month. Hello everyone and welcome to another one of these fun interview episodes. Um, Mike, today with me a special guest, all the way from, was it the West Coast? I think West Coast. We'll find out from right in a second. Uh, Judah from Cookie Dragon Games. Judah, did you get started? How are you doing this early in the morning? Hello. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. <clears throat> pretty good myself. I have my coffee that I'm, I've nearly finished. Uh, but yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready are you go. a one cup of coffee man? Are you a two cup of coffee man? How do you do your coffee in the morning? It really depends. Usually I'm a one cup, um, but Mondays are usually two cup. So as though, as, so like by Wednesday, I'm like, okay, I only need a little bit of coffee. And then back to Friday, it's like, give me all the coffee. That's, that's pretty funny. I'm pretty consistent. I just make like, uh, I have like the normal, like, you know, like co- Mr. Coffee Pots and I always do like the eight ounce line and then drink most of it in the morning. But like, that's mm. kind of like over a couple of hours, but I'm just consistent on that one versus like, I know some people like, apparently you fluctuate a lot. My, I laugh because my dad, I think drinks like three pots of coffee in the morning. So well, that is way too much. Perfect. Yeah. So we're here to talk about two kinds online. So immediately, I think looking back, I think this is the first like MMO we're having on the show. Um, so I've got to immediately ask because obviously MMOs are a massive feat. Uh, why? Why put yourself through that level of torture, chaos? Um, I can. I think. I think I can only say that I'm ambitious. I've always wanted to make larger games with like that creative control. So, um, yes, it's a lot of work, but as long as it's, like, consistently being worked on, it'll it'll get done eventually. <laughs> a fair way to say it. It's just, it's surprising, because it's, it's also one of those things that, obviously, it's a, it's a game that requires a lot of people to sustain itself. So, so I'm just kind of curious, as you've been developing it, um... You have some testers, I believe, going on and kind of checking it out. How has that part been, kind of, to make sure that you have the the volume of people you really need to make this a, a product that's not worth playing? But, you know, a lot of these types of games, it really comes down to the user base to find the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so I have a few contingency plans in, in place. So we're... We're designing it so that it could be sustained by the minimal number of players um, to like keep costs low, let the players that really like it just keep playing, and if it's not a big hit, that's okay. But also, um, if it it does end up a big hit, it's like okay, we need to be at, we don't want to be locked into such a small server where it's where we won't even be where we will fall over because there's too many players so we have a way to scale it out and make it larger so it's it depends so like we could do that that scaling to make sure that the server 
um, fits the amount of players that are playing it. So I want to play dumb for a second. Are you guys doing like a cloud-based server platform? Or are you like personally running a lot of these machines kind of yourself while you're in this development uh, phase? Cloud-based. We so um, a little bit about the game. It's um, it's built with Unity, and our networking solution is Spatial OS, which allows for um, which allows for like multi-machine server shards and and all sorts of scaling. Let's let's go down this road if you don't mind for a second. I'm kind of curious because sure. Spatial OS is something I am somewhat familiar with, but I I feel when you hear platforms like this, the there are a couple obvious answers that come to mind, and I feel like Spatial OS is one of the less common ones. Why did you go on that road versus like the obvious answer to me, which would be something like an AWS, which you know can mass scale both high and low really quickly. Uh, because it comes it comes down to platform features. So AWS is just strictly hosting. You get your you get your servers, you get some networking stuff, and you build. You have to build out your own, um, your own ho- your own um. Bobby, essentially, your own, you yeah. build out the the platform. You build out your server spin, up, your server connecting, um, and everything like that. So in the past, I've used Photon server. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the networking side. Yeah, Photon, that, I feel like, is the... If I said make make like a quick multiplayer thing, I feel like I'd always tell people to run on Photon because yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's so, surprisingly good out of the box. Yeah, so if you want to make a game quick, you you use Photon. Especially in Unity, that's like the number one, other than like Mirror or something now. But that still requires... But, but in my case, I'm I'm not just using that the photon fun out of the box. It was a I originally started on a custom server solution using that, but then um, I was missing out on a bunch of architecture design. The uh, I I was gonna have to figure out my own hosting. T- uh, use put it in start. It started in a computer in the closet, but eventually we would have to put it in like a data center somewhere. And the nice thing with Spatial OS, it's both the network design and the the platform. Like we can spin up multiple servers that can, that the player could connect to um, using their platform, and they also handle the hosting. So it takes so it takes a brunt uh, a lot of it takes a brunt the the engineering side of all that off of me, so that I could focus more on. Well, the I'm gonna game. need a secondary network engineer in the same way where MOs you're like. Even at start of MMO, you're always like, "Hey, we need someone whose sole job it is is to handle networking." I don't want you to Pretty think much. about anything else. I just want the instrument to work. Yeah, so I could put that on to using take it off of me and put it into Spatial OS, and I could, and I think that creates a better game product. And then um, I have other uh, indie MMO developer friends, and they're always like, "What are you doing with that?" Um, because they 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 use some other solutions. Instead, yeah, and there's not that many people I know that use it. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that I was just kind of surprised on. Let's kind of jump back out to you to the back and let's jump back into the game itself. So, yes, if if I was a new user and I was about to hop in the game, what would you describe kind of the type of things I do? Because you're not like when people think MMO, they think MMORPG, which that really isn't all the MMOs out there. Uh yeah, so the new user experience you're gonna you're gonna create your character. I want it to focus more on like the role play and the world. So it's so I wanted to focus more on 
you're going into this other world and you're going to go on an adventure. So uh, there's a lot of crafting. Um, there's going to be a bunch of combat that I'm actually actively working on right now. Um, and then there, and then there's going to be like, you can set up a little home for yourself somewhere and then use that as your home base to go on more adventures. Well, how, so when you describe this kind of in that vein to people, do you, I, I have like videos going up and back on stuff too. So I'm thinking about this kind of looking at it as like a user would look at it. How do you kind of think of like, like when you say you go on adventures, right? That I feel like that's a very broad thing. Do you picture this as like you guys are long-term crafting stuff, like a things for player to go on? Or do you picture it being like, Oh, players are going to go make their own adventure with just this world that kind of exists. It's going to be, it's going to be handcrafted stuff so um in this case like if you're a crafter you're going to go out into the field to get some rare materials and then come back home and make that really cool sword and then sell it to someone or use it yourself so and then if you're a fighter you might want to go down into the down into the dungeon kill this boss, get this rare item, and then sell it to the crafter so that they can make you that cool that cool sword or something. So the thing I'm always curious about whenever in this type of game, where people talk about like the whole, like, how you have these subclasses, whether they're defined or, like, self-defined. The thing that I understand why most do it, but frustrates me, it is, like, when you have these certain skills, and then each player, like, there's a 27 skills and each player can only get like three or four of them because they have to work good then is that a, like a road you are going down or are you doing a more open path of any player can do really anything at any time I'm going <clears throat> sorry uh, I'm going more open uh, so yeah there's like usually two designs there's like the class based and then there's the skill based I'm going I'm going skill based without classes so if uh, so any player can go can can follow like a skill tree, kind of like Skyrim, I guess. They could go up the skill tree and collect that branch of skills, but then they could divert and go go up a different skill tree and learn other things. And I and I feel honestly that's usually the better path because I think there's it's, some level of upsettingness when you're like, "Great, I have this maxed out thing, but I can only really do like five percent of things I can do." And then it, it makes sense for me longevity of those, but I also feel like that's. I think one of their general problems getting new players into them is that problem of like, wait, I have to keep playing this with how many characters? Yeah, and actually, actually, with in that regard, I really like Final Fantasy fourteen how they let you just switch compared to like system like general. Fine, I thought they have a job system akin to how Final Fantasy normally did jobs, unless I'm wrong. Of kind of like doing that, of like, yeah, you yeah. you can do anything. You have to like go to a spot and switch stuff out, but at least you could do everything. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool compared to the other class based MMOs where you where you're usually locked in. So one of the other things with MMOs, and I know you're still kind of in this development stage, is obviously there are two types of players. I think of them as the players who want the experience of kind of going through the process, and then you have like the end game players, which is the really hardcore MO players at this yeah. time, are you kind of balancing between them or how are you kind of viewing each of these buckets of players? 
Uh, actually, um, so um, I've ma- I mainly focus about the the in the game players, not the end, not the end game hardcore players. I I really don't like that dis- distinction. Actually, um, like I've never liked the idea of end game content and that being like the the true game. Um, a lot of people UMOs. I feel like. <laughs> And actually, uh, so I like going. I like going to um, Bartles Taxonomy of Players. There's actually like four distinct types of players. Well, you're really quizzing my college degree here. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I've I've studied a lot of theory on this. So it's, it's like the adventurer. It's the role player. It's uh, yeah. It's Explorer, you know, role player, killer, and socializer. Right. Yeah. So if anyone wants to Google muds ever, I believe that's what it comes from. Um, which were the original yeah. text-based MOs. And yeah, it's really those four. And every player really isn't just one of them. They're somewhere on this graph of them. Because each of them has an opposite force. And you're kind of some yeah. percentage of everything, most people. There are very few 100% of anything. Yeah, and players will shift around as, they're, as they play, too. Like, if, they, if, if players run out of content, they end up becoming killers. Because of course, because that's something you can always do, and that's yeah, that's I think GTA is a fine example of that one, especially like GTA Online. I'm out of things I want to do. Go kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the most extreme. <laughs> it's extreme, but it shows how the case works, and yeah, and that's I'm assuming something like oh, you make a mo, you have to at least look at some capacity how the game works. You know, you don't want to do it mechanically because there there are base. <laughs> incentives there um so it's gonna jump as i think as i said before we you are currently in some form of testing in this game kind of as stuff's going through how has that feedback been and kind of like has it really kind of is there anything like massive come of that really shifted how you're designing the game uh yeah um so i've i like the public play tests we're doing uh, it does get me some really good feedback. Um, seeing having people play it for the first time, like in person, I took it to a convention once. It was a small one, and just seeing how people first interacted the game with the game, and like really showed me, like, okay, there's definitely some weaknesses at the beginning about what to do and where to go. So how do I improve that? And then, and then in general, it's like, okay, at first I wanted to design the game as a hardcore open PvP game. But then upon um but then upon designing it and having people play, people don't want to lose their their stuff all the time. It's like, okay, how do I balance this? Okay, maybe not open PvP everywhere and it it, it leads to a lot of design changes, just having people try it throughout throughout its stages. That is, that's a very, that is a, yeah, it's a problem. So, I'm curious and kind of like, if you have people complaining how open the intro kind of was and the lack of direction kind of, can you just, if you don't mind describing kind of what it used to look like when I like spawned the first time in the world, like where people thought it was too open? Oh, well, it's, it's like, where, it's like, where do you go? What do you do there? This was like the time before I had some like early quests. To kind of direct you through the world, um, I also had the starting area just cor- surrounded by fog, 
So it's like the first thing you do is you get lost in a fog in the fog. And I don't know why that why I thought that was a good idea. So liter- literally players we get lost in the fog. Wow, that is Yeah. That Maybe is, a bad idea. Yeah. It's one of those things that I don't think people always realize that how complicated especially in an open world game, right? Because it's the general yeah. complaint like like Skyrim's always made this joke, right? You start locked in a cell and then it like breaks it open. But that's also on purpose. Because you have to part of it is like if I drop you in a world and I just say run Everyone goes, how do I run? Versus you at least spend the, the half hour, 20 minutes to at least teach them controls and give them some intro quests that half players might not do. But at least you give them mm-hmm. a sense of something. Yeah, so in the in, in the case now, we're starting with um, a, a small st- starting area of islands, small islands surrounded by water that have like direct set paths of where, to, where you can go, but you can still kind of bring other ways and and then finally once the players gone through the bait the tutorials they'll be dropped into the larger world and even then we're still going to probably start like players in a valley and then they can branch out into larger world just like that but that direct the usually players don't do well when they're just dropped into a large open world with no direction we're just funny because every player thinks they want that you ask any player, but they're like, I just yes. want to be dropped in the world. And you're like, no, you don't. Like, I don't no. care what you, you want. <laughs> you want a directed experience, even if you don't know that. Just at least long enough to, like, get you to understand that you can merge. Right? You don't need... Yeah. You don't, I would not be playing user experience forever. But there could be a solid 45 minutes. You're like, no, you need something linear. Trust me. Yeah, and if, and if you're an experienced player, you could just run off. If you know where you're going. But if you're not, you're new to the world, you need a... Usually you need a little direction. Okay. So yeah. while we're talking, the way I caught you is obviously you were gearing up, I think, for a Steam early access launch. Um, so I'm yes. curious why it isn't there now, right? So you talk about how you're in this open playtest period. Is it just because you want to get to more stable, or is there some other kind of stuff you want to hit before you really send it into a more public-facing um, it's definitely not, uh, so the game, so the amount of gameplay I have in it lasts about half an hour, I would say. And there's certain pieces of content that I need finished so that I can fill out the larger game loop for people to, re- for the, for the general public just on Steam to really, uh, try it. Because right now it's, the people trying it are the ones that are like that are really eager to try it to to play it that will probably with all the hoops that they have to jump through to play it will probably be a little bit more forgiving that it's um that it's so incomplete now that makes that makes sense if <laughs> you were purposely gatekeeping the entrance way just to make sure yeah, people who make that, through it actually want to yeah understand. and with our our small test server, we don't want to accidentally have the public all try to log in at once and have it fall over and have a bad experience. Uh, the ye old you so, have one first crush. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that exactly. Is, uh, just always remember the best advice is on whatever you actually launch to the general public. Just double your server capacity, whatever you think you need. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> everyone's like, oh, I need X. No, no, you need X times two. Just to be safe. Yeah, and the nice thing is we can happen. scale. 
We can scale, but we can only scale so fast. Because it just takes time to spin that stuff up. Yeah. People think of it as, like, it's a hit of a button. Like, it is, but they're still machines. They still spin there's... things up. They still have to connect into the existing servers. Yeah, there's a physical server somewhere in there, and you have it has to have your code running. So, yeah. takes definitely takes time. You don't just type in command that says, like, new server and doesn't just happen? (laughs) (laughs) Great. Okay. So let's kind of, as we wrap this up, then we kind of talk about, like, now you're in this earlier kind of state. There's about a half hour kind of stuff to do. What can people kind of look forward to coming in the next couple months for the game? It sounds like combat's coming soon. Yeah, so we've been combat's been kind of a weakness for the game for a while. Um, it's been in a few stages of prototypes, and in this last two months, we've I think we finally hit the design for it. With for so we're not going like classical MMO tab targeting combat. We're doing more like an action combat setup. Um, and I think we're finally at the stage where it's starting to feel good. And then along with that is some NPC improvements so that you have some fun enemies to fight. Um, because right now, right now it's pretty imbalanced where, um, you could get one or two shot by like a fox. Foxes are deadly. I don't know what to tell you. Butterflies are definitely deadly, but the foxes are not supposed to be as much. Uh, so yeah, we have that coming up, and then after that is probably a bunch of magic, some uh, some dungeoning, and uh, player housing we need to get in. I, I have to ask now, then, because you brought up magic. When you view the world of magic, do you view it more of, like, Harry Potter-style magic, or do you view it more like Witcher-style magic? So, like, the like high fantasy, like, stuff just happens, or the low fantasy, like, there are consequences to magic, it's tied into some level real-world elements? Uh, we're generally treating it as high fantasy, although um, there is an element of like dark magic that um, that kind of ex- that you kind of ex- uh, uses and ex- uh, burns up life force. So there's kind of that aspect to it where it's kind of like a corruptive force. But in general, magic is like um, you have you have a set amount of mana and you you can use it to cast things. Okay. Perfect. Well, yeah. So let's see. If people want to go find the game, or at least find out more about it, where should we be sending them? Uh, have them go to twokinds.online. Or, or look it up on Steam. Two Kinds Online. And I assume wishlist and all that fun stuff. Please wishlist, yes. Uh, if you want to try the game, you can get a Steam key for testing on the website. Um... Yeah, we're uh, we're pretty active in development. We're trying to meet our vague de- deadlines. Uh, which it, is it vague deadlines on Steam currently is to be determined. Yes, to be determined. <laughs> the greatest vagueness. I liked to be determined or when it's done is my other good one. Yeah, when it's done is also very good and definitely uh, definitely fits my fits my mantra too. Perfect. Well, again. Thank you for taking time this morning to talk to us about the game. Yeah. And best of luck while uh, figuring out more development stuff and figuring out combat. That's always pinning us. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Yeah, next up is NPCs and or yeah, AI and that's even that's probably even more hard. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another of these fun interview segments of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, and today with me, two guests from decently around the world. Uh, to get us started, do you guys mind going one at a time, introducing yourselves and the game we're here to talk about? Oh, yes, for yeah. sure. So I am okay. Mabel. I'm a game designer of Studio Bravarda. We're currently developing our first commercial title, Terrapulse, and I'm also here with Young. Yeah, so I'm I'm Yan. I'm the creative director of Terrapulse, game designer, sound designer, janitor, you know, into dev, you kind of do a bunch of things at the same time. I'm here in Brazil and Mabel is in Portugal. Um yeah, uh that that's it. Perfect. So then it's really hard because both of you kind of have jobs that can answer this to get us started. Then I guess I'll start with you since you're a game designer. It, what is TerraPulse? So for people who've never heard, since you guys, this is your first commercial game, like what is TerraPulse? Yeah, so uh, Mabel is in Portugal, but everyone in the team is Brazilian. So TerraPulse is all about um, kind of a mission statement that we have uh, in our studio, which is to tell the stories that only we can tell. And what we mean by that is we're trying to find stories and gameplay experience that only we could make intrinsically as Brazilians. So Terrapos is a Metroidvania, a top-down uh, action game where you have to explore the ruins of Rio de Janeiro, you know? And it's a game that's like, uh, it's born from this statement because, you know, I don't think anybody uh, finds anything new in, like, seeing New York be destroyed by post-apocalypse, you know, or something like that. Or seeing the Golden Gate Bridge get taken away by a tsunami, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean... San Francisco keeps getting pissed off because Golden Gate Bridge is... It's a, we joke it's a legal requirement that, like, it's a disaster movie. The Golden Gate Bridge must be yeah. destroyed. <laughs> and it's like, well, like, maybe San Fran. It's something about we think of you versus... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, like, there's a lot of narratives about America, about Europe. We're trying to find narratives that are local. And that's why we decided to set this game in Rio de Janeiro, which is our city of birth, you know. So, Terry Pulse is this game that is a little bit of, like, Hyper Light Drifter mixed with Hollow Knight. So, you have top-down combat, and you have exploration with the progression of Hollow Knight. So, you start with a base camp. You know, and you go around exploring the neighborhoods of Rio de Janeiro, finding monsters, defeating bosses, discovering new artifacts that you bring back to your base camp. And then you build kind of a bastion of humanity and you start discovering what happened to the city, you know. And we're trying to put a lot of things that are really local but can be really interesting internationally. So like um, Brazilian foods, ways of talking uh, things of uh, stereotypes of, of cariocas, which are people that live in Rio de Janeiro as characters. So it's something that for us, it is so fun to design, you know. And I, we think that it is both um, uh, a project challenge that is interesting because we're always trying to find how could we make this gameplay aspect be Brazilian, be something that only we could create. And also something that we think is commercially interesting because, as I said, um, another great post-apocalyptic game in New York. I think there's enough of them. You know, what about a post-apocalypse where nature is thriving, which is Terrapulse, you know? Everything is really colorful and saturated. And that's basically what Terrapulse is all about. That's it's, it's interesting to me because I understand that, like, there is inherent differences. Like, we go to different cities, there's going to be some different cultural things to me. I find it fascinating that that is, I don't want to say the pitch of the studio, but I guess it kind of is, is this 
trying to find these local stories. So, and again, this could be for either of you, depending how you guys feel. Um, how would you kind of be like, oh, if I said, what is in a game or in this like grand sense, like the cultural parts of the city? Because like, obviously if I think of like San Francisco, we talk about like the cultural being tech or New York, the cultural being finance or money or pending the era of crime. I'm kind of curious, kind of like, actually, I don't know. What is kind of these big cultural pieces that you kind of describe in looking at this environment? That's a great, well, great question. Yeah. Mabel, you answer it, please. Okay. <laughs> Something yeah. that people always talk about us, like when foreign people meet karaoke's, like uh, people from Rio, Although I'm living in Europe, I was born in Rio, so I I know all of that sensation. But people say that we are very warm. Like Brazilians are usually very charismatic in a way. So I already saw some people saying that Terrapulse, because we are using like those tropical vibe and all those very saturated colors, this is a bit of what Brazil seems to to foreigners in a way. So we are trying to use all this warm, charismatic, and very like open arms kind of vibe that we have in Brazil in a way. So we're trying to make this thing that kind of seems like a paradox because we are using a post-apocalyptic setting with which people usually think would be something more like moody, even dark, and we are twisting it by creating something very colorful, very warm, kind of wholesome in a way, even if it's a post-apocalyptic setting. So this is our biggest challenge when making Rio de Janeiro in the game, I think. Yeah, and there's one other thing is that um, this way of like, how can we portray Rio and ourselves? It goes from the biggest design decisions to the smallest ones. So one example I could give is, how do you save your game? How do you save your progress in Terrapulse? You lie down in a hammock, you know? Hem I have a hammock in my house. It's really something that culturally is uh, really common to Brazilians and even in Rio de Janeiro. So when we were talking about how we're going to make the character do this, we always think about like, oh, the, this is a kind of our way of doing it. So our battle system, really uh, benefits from that because our main character, we are very inspired by capoeira. Capoeira is kind of a martial art here in Brazil, which is has originated in the colonial times from slaves that came from Africa. And when, while living in Brazil, they developed this cultural form that's like a mix of dance and fighting. And that, that's what capoeira is. And we were really interested in, like, if we're going to make a battle system, well, what's going to happen? I mean, our main character is a human. And the world of Terrapulse, the monsters, the uh, animals have become monsters. So our main character is, uh, is, a, is a woman. She's Lena. And she's kind of late teen years. She's not going to, like, punch a giant monkey. <laughs> she's not going to do it. So we were, like, really interested in uh, getting aspects from Capoeira and infusing it in our battle system, you know. So Capoeira was not an, a martial art that was all about uh, fighting and hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's all about dodging. So our battle system is in inspired by Hyperlight Drifter, but it has a lot more dodging uh, uh, movements. And, like, you're always uh, fleeing from enemies in a certain way. 
you know. So that's a few examples of how we're trying to find cultural touchstones in Brazil and imbuing that in the game design. I mean, we love to gush about these things. We have a lot of examples, but I could talk the whole day about this, you know. Yeah, there's just one more thing I would like to point it out, is that when we are thinking of the level design of the game, we always start by doing some research about the city. So we like to pick some landmarks that we know people from Brazil are already familiar with, but are also known in uh, like worldwide so this is something that's really important for us like trying to portray our city not just uh, our interpretation of it so something that it's really cool that we're doing is that we have partnered with a museologist who is helping us with this aspect of the game so she is basically doing all the research of good landmarks, good points of interest that we could put into the level design so that we can really portray some aspects of Rio. So, for example, uh, on the demo we have right now, we have the Celaron Stairs, which are part of the central area of the city. And we also have the Lapa Archiduct, which is also a very big landmark there. So we are trying to put those little points of interest that that are really real in a way, right? So we can make our own interpretation of the city, like using our creativity in order to show a different side of the city, uh, basically because we're using this futuristic setting and all this tropical exaggeration. But at the same time, we do have some things that are based on real Rio de Janeiro. So, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> it's interesting because, again, it's just Rio is definitely one of the cities I don't know a lot about. And it's fascinating how much you guys have thought about those little cultural touchstones to kind of really fit in this world. Kind of jumping back to it from a mechanics point of view, I know you guys keep comparing the game to Hyper Light Drifter. And when you say Metrovania, I think a lot of people have different immediate images in their head. Um, I'm kind of curious, the thing that really stood out to me kind of were when, when looking at the game, two things actually, was both the art style of the game and and then these like boss-like creatures. I'm kind of curious, uh, like I have the Steam page in the background, I have this one kind of looks like a big gorilla kind of thing, which I think is really cool. Are these kind of, when you thought of these enemies, did you think of like the environment around Rio de Janeiro to like really develop the enemies or do you kind of just think of what would be cool and make them fit kind of in this world it's actually a mix of both of them like for example this boss the Chion, which is his name actually um it's based on a real monkey that became almost like a celebrity like decades ago in rio because he was a part of a zoo and people said he was almost human in the way he behaved so we wanted to make some jokes around things that are very cultural for us. So that's why our first boss and the boss that is featured in the demo, it's actually based on a monkey, but more specifically, uh, the golden monkey lion, which in Portuguese would be Mico Leon Dourado, which is a specific kind of tiny little golden monkey. So we decided, oh, how are we going to use this in the game? So let's make him giant and be a boss. Like we're trying to fuse 
a lot of things when thinking of the monsters, like what we can create from scratch, what we can adapt from something. And that's what we are currently doing. Yeah, so it's a mix of like something being really cool and something being really from Rio de Janeiro. So as Mabel said, I mean, Golden Monkey Lion, that's already a boss name, <laughs> you know, like it sounds like a boss, but he's a really tiny monkey. So we kind of made him a bodybuilder, something like that. Also, like uh, there's a lot of uh, blue frogs in uh, in the game, like Sapo Boyazu, the blue bullfrog. It's kind of a mean species of, of, of frog here in Brazil. I don't know why, but there's some jokes about Sapo Boy Azul. And that's like something we found uh, funny and interesting and something that Brazilians would see. But maybe for uh, global players, it would be just a cool enemy. So it's kind of like finding the balance between something locally people will find interesting and recognize and something that globally will be interesting in itself. Kind of something like that. And, you know, uh, Rio is in the Mata Atlântica, which I think translates to Atlantic Forest. It's a whole biome of Brazil that was really devastated uh, in the colonial period and even after. It is still devastated to this day. And there's, like, a lot of an endemic species and a lot of endemic trees. So, like, there's so much to find interesting here to build upon that's like i don't know why there aren't more like uh global cities that get that they could get this attention you know we're like it is kind of we feel like it is so organic and easy to design upon something that is so familiar to us you know it's so it, it, we're always finding out new stuff about the place we grew up in something like that because I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that even culturally it's not... Actually, since you guys are from there, you probably hear a lot more, but like, it's not an area that I feel is known a ton about, because I can think of, even like from cop culture, I can think of like a film or two, and it's like animated films. Like, I can't think of like massive things kind of take place in this area, and that's really fascinating to me, kind of that this being your cultural touchstone, your cultural focus, like even down to just talk about the design of the enemies. The other thing that I really want to hit, it being a Metroidvania um, type game, is actually you guys have what looks like and functions as a really cool kind of upgrade system to kind of like talk about the weapons a bit in the world and kind of like we talk about kind of like how this kind of unique system functions for a bit. Yeah, sure. So the main weapon of the game is a gun blade, but um, I mean globally is a gun blade. Gun blade in uh, in Brazil, everyone will see that it is a peixeira. A peixeira is like a blade for fishermen, but it's like um, it's kind of like uh, a Brazilian sword, you know, because fishermen use it to cut fish. But it's like a, basically a, a, it's basically a weapon in some places here it's in huge. in Brazil. <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge blade, like it's ridiculous, and it's just for cutting fish, but it could easily be used by a medieval warrior, you know? And the gun blade, uh, it, it's both, uh, uh, it, it is a weapon that receives permanent upgrades, so like the first upgrade you get is in the beginning, it is just a blade, but eventually you will get the gun upgrade. Then you will basically be able to use it for slashing and shooting. And also, you have uh, another system, which is the modification system. People that played Hollow Knight or Paper Mario are probably going to know what I'm talking about. But 
you you will find and build uh, modifications which are which are like um, uh, small pieces of technology, and you will in base camp equip them in your gunblade. So you will, for example, you will find something that makes your uh, bullet shots bigger but slower, and then you will equip it. And then you will find something that makes your blade attacks uh, a little slower, but they can push back your enemies farther. So it's like little gameplay modifications that can adapt to what the player feels like he can make um, uh, better as a player, you know? And it's something that has uh, has a few counterbalances. So you can't just equip 20 modifications. You have to balance them with the amount of energy that the gunblade can uh, utilize. So, like, if you've already spent, like, 50 watts in equipments that make shooting... Uh, 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 that, that make the shooting better... When you try to slash, you're gonna have less energy for your for your blade modifications, you know. So it's a system that's all about the player making his own build, and like it's something that in Hollow Knight works very well. But we're trying to expand the possibilities of the game and make a really like a customizable combat feel, you know. And the way you think of the energy, I think, is what I think stands out there, I, I tend to draw towards those kind of games that, like, if you're going to give me a limitation, at least explain why, and, and the idea oh, yeah. that there's a limit on your gun of the amount of energy in it makes at least some story sense versus some mystical magic capacity, right? Because we would broadly understand the idea of energy. Kind of jumping, the thing I want us to kind of hover on now, and I'm going to kind of press you guys in this a little, um, obviously we're talking about a game that is not out yet. We're talking about a game that uh, I'm kind of curious if you guys have publicly stated or any like that kind of a broad timeline for when people can expect this game to start coming out. Yeah, so that's the thing about indie development because we're we've been developing this game for like um, a year and three months, something like that. So the moment we're at right now is that we are searching for partners. So we can develop the game in the best way possible. So it's like, this is a, an inflection point in development, which I really, I could say to you, like, there is a possibility that th this game could launch uh, in, 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 like, it could launch in two years, it could launch in one year. I really can't tell exactly when we, we would be able to launch. So the best thing I can offer as an answer right now is that we are still... It is basically like, um, since it really speaks about the mission of our studio, it's kind of like um, the at top of the mountain for us, being able to launch it. So I really can't tell when it will launch, but uh, we have like an internal timeline that we're, we're using for like the scope of the game and all. But in indie development, um, you know, everything can happen. The important thing right now is that we have a, a, a vertical slice of the game. So I can say that we have some uh, security about how the game uh, works, you know? So, like, uh, we have validated some aspects of it. There are some things that we know we can iterate it, but a lot of things we prefer to keep under wraps so we can really um, only promise what we can deliver, you know?
guys, I want to say thank you for taking time out of your afternoon to talk to me about TerraPulse. I think the game looks really cool. It definitely drew my attention, and people should go check it out. If people want to go check out TerraPulse, I assume go check it out on Steam. Um, where else should they go be looking at stuff? We have a Twitter page. is Studio Bravarda, like the name of the studio. And we also have an Instagram page that we're using to update on the development of the game. So we basically use those two platforms. We also have a Discord server. Uh, we can drop the link later for you if you want to put in the description or, or something like this. So we're starting to build a community around the game. It's still a bit early, as Jan said. Like We're still early in the development, but right now we're trying to foster this community in order to keep showing what we're doing and start to make connections in order to finish the game. Yeah, and uh, some, something that, that I would love to add is that uh, since TerraPose is like... It's a big project, and we, we plan on spending some time on it yet. I can tell that it is a, kind of a longer term. We actually have something in wraps that we will be announcing soon as yeah, some, uh, a project in our studio. And in a few weeks, we will drop something about this new project, which is a little bit shorter term than TerraPulse. But I can say that if you like what we're t talking about, something that is really local, uh, really Brazilian, and this is a story that only we could tell. I can guarantee that people will, will be interested in this um, uh, smaller game that we're planning on uh, talking about it soon. Again, guys, thank you for taking time out of the afternoon, and best of luck as you continue development and looking for development partners. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're glad to be here talking to you. Thank you, Mike. It was a real pleasure. This podcast was a production of The SWW Show. To learn more, go to theswwshow.com. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at The SWW Show. You can follow me at Mikey underscore Maroney. You can follow AJ at Lowseatboard. Remember, new episodes premiere on Friday, 9 a.m. Central Time on anchor.fm slash SWW and podcast services around the globe.